and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then, he, then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go. A three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded his taskmasters and the people and the form, their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our Lord God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. Can you imagine what your mental state would be regarding your future if you had experienced a family heritage of 400 years of slavery? No hope for a family business, no property to call your own, no process of selecting a career path, no higher education, and even the thought of getting married and bringing children into the world had to be cast under a shadow of gloom and depression. Day in and day out, your existence consisted of back-breaking labor, the lowest level of dietary needs, humble shelter, and only one bright spot, family time. Well, this is the situation that we find Israel in in uh, Exodus chapter 5. Moses has had a 40-year absence, and now he has uh, returned, and his people are still doing the same thing that they were doing when he left. They are churning out bricks for Pharaoh's temples, palaces, and statues. I spent about an hour in preparation for this message watching how bricks are made, uh, especially in regard to how they were made uh, back in those times. And let's just say it doesn't look fun. <laughs> One video from a pioneer program called Townsend shows how long it took to make those kinds of bricks suitable for building. Uh, in that show, they were making bricks for a hearth in a pioneer uh, cottage that they were building there. And it took them six months just to make 200 bricks. And so uh, obviously, it's a long and tedious process. There's a family actually back in Egypt uh, that is making bricks the way they did 5,000 years ago. And what they do is they mix clay with straw and manure, and they stomp it together. Uh, they hand fill wooden molds, and then they lay the wet bricks out in the sun to dry. After they've dried, they build a huge kiln out of the bricks, and they fire it from the inside out. And one of the most serious problems that they face is that of injury. 
because multiple times a day they are transporting bricks on their backs. And these bricks can weigh up to 165 pounds for each trip. And I would imagine that the morale would have been one of the main issues for the Israelites at that time. And this is why the Egyptians had slave drivers, to keep them doing what the Pharaoh wanted them to do. And so threat of punishment and even execution kept those slaves working so they could meet that quota that the Pharaoh had set. However, for every Israelite, there was something whispering in the deep recesses of their long-forgotten memories. There were stories of how God spoke to their ancestors about a land that they could call their own, a land of promise and a land of freedom. Currently in America, very few people spend much time thinking about the threat of slavery. And I can honestly say that I have never worried for my children, thinking that perhaps someday they might be captured and brought into slavery. However, most people don't realize that they are indeed slaves, not to some power-hungry world politician, but rather to the spiritual ruler of this age, Satan. And as a Christian, you are no longer the devil's slave. You are a child of the king. Now that being said, many Christians, their lives don't reflect that freedom. Paul encouraged the Christians in Galatia regarding this problem. He said, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Now, you would think that somebody that's tasted the freedom that God gives would never want to return to slavery. Strangely enough, though, that's the very thing that happened to Israel once they gained their freedom. We fast forward a little bit to Exodus 16, 1 through 3, where we see them, see them crying out against Moses. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 50th day of the second month, they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, that's two million people, by the way, and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died at the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And so today, we are on a spiritual journey, and we are somewhere between... <laughs> The Red Sea, our salvation, and the promised land, which is heaven. And we're journeying in this wilderness. And we too might be tempted to look back at Egypt and wish we had never started this journey. And I want to look at the condition that Israel was in when Moses came to redeem them and how God dealt with Pharaoh. And my hope is that I encourage you not to grumble against the Lord as we journey not to long to go back to those acts of slavery that kept us bound. And so we're going to be looking at this situation. First of all, we see hope for redemption. In verse uh, 1 here of our text in Exodus 5, we see the word afterward. Something took place before Moses went to Pharaoh and demanded that the people be let go. And the thing that took place was a meeting between Moses Aaron, and the elders of the people. Notice that Moses does not go straight away to Pharaoh. 
Because God is revealing his plan to his people first. He's showing them what will happen, not what might happen. And this shows us that God does not need the devil's permission to free his people. We see this time and uh, time again in uh, Jesus' ministry. Anytime he encounters a demonic presence, Jesus was the one who was in charge. Jesus was the one with the authority. And even when he was being led off to the cross, he told Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from on high. Notice the people's initial response in Exodus 4.31, right before our passage today. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. That's their initial response when Moses comes to tell the people. They believed. They were excited. They had hoped that their time of being enslaved was coming to an end. And they worshipped God. Those of us who have come to the Lord late in life have had this kind of experience. We've heard the good news that God has seen our affliction and that he wants to set us free from the slavery of sin. And as soon as we believe, we find that we have real hope for the first time in our lives. And as a direct result of that hope, we begin to worship the Lord. However, within the first few weeks, something else happens that causes us to question our decision. And that brings us to our next point here, uh, Pharaoh's response, or the devil's response as well. I want you to notice that Pharaoh is not super excited to let Israel go. Not only because he needs workers, but also because he is afraid. We see this in verse 5 where he says, Behold, the people of the land are now many. And this was the initial reason why his predecessor long ago enslaved Israel to begin with. He was afraid. We see this back in Exodus chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. It says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so upon hearing Moses' demands, he increases the oppression. He gives them an impossible task. Make the same quota of bricks without the binding agent, straw. In other words, he lays a heavier burden upon them. And please don't miss the spiritual parallel here. We're talking about worship. God commands that Pharaoh let his people go in order that they might go out and voluntarily worship him. But in contrast, Pharaoh is forcing the Israelites to participate in unholy worship. The bricks that they're making are the foundation for his kingdom. They're the foundation for the storehouses so that Pharaoh can be seen as the savior of the people. They're the foundation for the statues of hundreds of gods that the Egyptians worship. And Satan's main goal in dealing with mankind is to extract worship from them. This was Satan's first great sin. He wanted to be like God. 
He wanted people to come and bow down and worship him. We see this perfectly demonstrated in Satan's dealings with Jesus when he was being tempted in the wilderness. If only you would come and bow down before me, I will give you all of this, meaning the kingdoms of the world that he had control of at that time. However, worshiping Satan is a major burden. It doesn't free us from the bondage of self. It feeds the ego and it leaves us empty. In contrast, when we worship the Lord, it's the exact opposite. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we come to the Lord in worship, he takes his burden, our burden upon himself. And notice our emotional response, worshiping God is much different than the devil, right? When Peter, the apostle, realized who Jesus was after the miraculous catch of fish, what does he do? He bows down in fear. He's afraid because he knows that he's sinful. And he's in the presence of the holy God. But notice in that moment, Jesus doesn't humiliate him by saying, Yes, Peter, grovel before me, tremble in fear of my holy presence. No, he says something very powerful. The thing that he says to us as well. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's what Satan wants. Be afraid. That's why when you see depictions of Satan in movies and in different uh, media, it's a fearful response. They're usually horror movies, right? Fear. And so as we come to the Lord in worship, he removes our fear of self-preservation until all we see is him. We're not afraid anymore. We know that he desires us. We're his beloved. Satan, on the other hand, hates us even more when we come to worship him. He's like the man who loathes the woman he has just raped, always taking without giving anything in return. And so how does the devil keep the Christian man or woman from spending time worshiping God? Well, he does the same thing that Pharaoh did. He forces them back to their burdens, increasing their burdens, making life more difficult than it had been before, oppressing them. Many people, when they become Christians, have this false notion that their problems are going to suddenly be solved as a result of their new faith. And obviously their major problem is solved, that of their relationship with the Lord, but this idea of prosperity has been fed to the church through the prosperity movement, which is closely tied to the word of faith theology. In a nutshell, those who adhere to this kind of teaching and this doctrine say that God only desires that his followers experience material prosperity and total healing in all areas. And they say that if a Christian is in poverty or has an illness, it's not because it's God's will for them. It's because of their lack of faith. If only they would have enough faith, they could be healed. If only they would have enough faith, they could be wealthy. This movement gained popularity back in the 1980s, due in part to televangelists like Kenneth Copeland, Oral Roberts, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, and is still be being preached 
by one of its biggest proponents, uh, Joel Osteen. Strangely enough, though, many of the original prosperity preachers are dead. And I call this strange because obviously they didn't walk in perfect health. Some kind of disease got them, right? One time Mary and I were at the home of a former barbershop um, customer, and he and his wife attended a church that was well known for preaching the prosperity gospel. And I noticed that the man, he was wearing shorts at the time, had a severe skin rash. And I commented on it. Oh, what's, what's going on with your legs there? He looked straight in my eyes and he said, I'm not, I don't have a rash. I said, what are you talking about? You've got this rash. No, I'm healed. He believed that if he actually said that he had a rash, which was the reality, it would diminish his faith. And I was like, this is the most ridiculous. How, how do people walk around without feeling shame that they're sick in that kind of church? And so, just very strange. Just because the Christian um, has become a follower of the Lord, it doesn't mean that everything's going to go smoothly. In fact, just the opposite many times happens, right? Look at the lives of the disciples. Did their lives get better or worse after beginning to follow the Lord? Well, they're better in some ways because now they have the teachings of the Lord. But if you looked from the outside, it got a lot worse. They're on the road. They're being persecuted from the religious leaders of the day. They're being persecuted from the Romans. They're being killed, beaten, living near the poverty line. Also, in other parts of the world, Christians are treated with contempt. Many lose their businesses and their homes if they stand up for Christ. And this is the way the devil wants to call them back to their burdens, make their life worse once they become a Christian, begin to persecute them, and they become so miserable that they think about leaving their worship of God. And so let's look at the people's reaction here in Exodus 5. In the case of Moses and the Pharaoh, the tactic worked. The Israelites, their hope was dashed, and their belief turned into grumbling. Look at verse 21. The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in the hand to kill us. Basically here, they're calling Moses a liar. They're questioning whether he heard the Lord correctly. And you can just read between the lines to see what the people are thinking here, right? We were fine before you showed up and promised this freedom. Now we're worse than we were before. Why don't you go back to tending sheep? Why do so many Christians turn their back on the Lord and flee back to the devil's brick pits? That's a really tough question. And I can't speak for anybody else, but I can speak for myself. There have been times when I have been lured into acting like a slave again, even though I know I'm a child of the king. And one of the primary reasons for this is because in the moment, I began to question the goodness of God. When the pressures of life began to mount or tragedy struck, a nagging voice in the back of my mind said, do you really believe that you're one of God's chosen ones? <laughs> If Jesus loved you so much, then why is he allowing all these bad things to happen in your life? I thought he was supposed to give you this amazing power to overcome sin, and yet here you are, 
back in the pig slop again. While the Hebrew foremen were being beaten because they couldn't meet Pharaoh's quota, I'm sure they didn't feel much like God's special chosen ones. And in the words of Tevia from the Fiddler on the Roof, they probably were saying, I know we're your chosen people, but once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? <laughs> Amazingly, these trials that we go through, when the devil ramps up his attack against us, that's actual proof that we are God's chosen ones, that we are his children. In Hebrews 12, 7, it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Look, being a child is difficult. That's why so many kids run off after they graduate. They're like, I'm getting as far. That was me. I was in Wisconsin. Two days after I graduated, I was in basic, and then I was in Germany. Because it's hard being a kid. Hard having people tell you what you can and cannot do. You want to choose your own path. But remember, Jesus said, the way is narrow that leads to eternal life. And few find it. And if you're feeling beat up this morning, celebrate. Because that means that you're God's child and the devil has his eye on you. If you were making any kind of difference, he'd leave you alone. <laughs> he only focuses on ones that are creating problems for him. But God is helping you grow in your maturity He's changing you into the image of his son. He's helping you stay on that narrow path. Notice here God's response. Moses could have given up, right? This is it. I'm, I'm going back. You know, the people hate me. Pharaoh hates me. Everybody hates me. Didn't, have, didn't work. I told him to let him go. He wouldn't let him go. The reason Moses didn't do this, didn't flee back, uh, to Midian, was because God always backs his words with power. Plague after plague descended upon the kingdom of Egypt. Some commentaries say that the ten plagues dealt with the ten, ten main gods that Egypt was worshiping at that time. And the point is, Satan cannot stand up against God's will. We see the culmination of his salvation foreshadowed here in the killing of the Egyptians' firstborn, which was the plague that finally caused Pharaoh to say, fine enough, get out of here. During that plague, the people were to kill an unblemished lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts of their homes. This is called the Passover because at that time, the angel of death passed over the Israelites for those who had marked their doors. And Jesus is our perfect Passover lamb. He sets you free from the slavery of sin. Just as death passed over the ancient people of Israel, so too death will not affect you when his blood marks the doorpost of your life. You will go right from life to life. The Bible says you will not even taste death as you enter into the promised land as God's free chosen child. Wrapping up today, obviously, it's Father's Day. And it's a random day that we've selected to honor dads. But one of the things I've noticed as I looked at artist uh, depictions of the brick pits and the slavery and all of that kind of thing, all the slaves that were working in the brick pits are men. In fact, the uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics that 
many believe depict this period of time show only men working in the brick pits. You husbands and fathers, whether you acknowledge it or not, are the spiritual heads of your household, according to the Bible. The primary verse that shows this, although there are dozens of other ones, is 1 Corinthians 11.3, which says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so dads, the devil wants to keep you from leading your family into worship. He wants to drag you back to your burdens. And he will use whatever he can in this life to keep you from worshiping God with your families. And there's a million excuses that he'll offer you. Excuses like sports, work, vacation, someone you don't like at church, dislike for the preaching, inability to sing, whatever your thing is. But listen, men, God is on our side in this battle. And just like the Israelites, we fail time and time again in this area. I had many times, many things I wanted to do with my kids that I failed in. But just like I tell the young men in my brotherhood group that I lead, I said, you only lose if you quit. Keep trying. Don't give up. Even your most feeble attempts will be noticed by your children. And I also want to address some of you wives and children this morning. This last encouragement to dads may have made you feel very sad, frankly, because your husband or father has not been doing a good job of leading your family spiritually. I would encourage you, instead of being angry or grumbling against God about the lousy husband or dad that he gave you, <laughs> pray for him. Also, go beyond that. Pray that God would provide you a spiritual father. I've had five spiritual fathers in my life that I look to. And if God has provided you a spiritual father, call him today. <laughs> While I was in Minneapolis, I stopped by the house of one of my spiritual fathers, just as a surprise. Surprise, his wife was there, so he wasn't. But. And I called another spiritual father of mine last night, thanking him for stepping in where my dad lacked and being that spiritual father for me. And if you have a great biological father who has led you to worship our Heavenly Father, hug him extra tight today and thank God for him. Because that man, kind of man is becoming a real, real rarity in our current culture today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this story about how you've led us out of slavery and brought us to your throne to worship. Worship a God who loves us as children, not belittles us as slaves. And so, Father, we lift up all dads today. We pray for those who are brokenhearted and hurting because of a lack of a father in their lives. And, Father, we lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.